Jim Morris, welcome to the new school. Well, welcome. Thank you. Um, you are a uh, expert, a world authority uh, on Ibn Arabi and uh, many related topics. You are a professor of theology at Boston College. You've taught at the University of Exeter, at Princeton, Oberlin, Temple, the Institute of Ismaili Studies in Paris and London. You've been a visiting professor at the Ecole Pratique des Hautes-Études in Paris, taught at the University of Malaya and the University of Sarajevo. Um, and uh, I was particularly eager to talk with you. You're out here to give a, a keynote talk in Berkeley at the Ibn Arabi Society, which you're a life fellow of. Uh, I was particularly eager to talk to you because three or four months ago, I uh, encountered Ibn Arabi, and I fell in love with Ibn Arabi. I'm sure that you've heard this from many people. <laughs> Some uh, people. <laughs> I fell in love with him. Uh, it's not my first uh, yeah. such love affair. Yeah. Uh, there have been others in other spiritual traditions, but this is very powerful. Um, and as I made my way through it, a Sufi friend of mine who, like many Sufis, prefers to remain anonymous, but has guided a lot of my reading, um, introduced me to you, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I have the opportunity to talk with you about Ibn Arabi. So I'd like to start at the, be the very beginning. <laughs> Who was Ibn Arabi? Well, he was born in Spain, spent his youth there, and grew up there uh, in uh, Andalusia, we call it now, between uh, Murcia, Cordoba, and Seville, and uh, went on into North Africa. And then, for reasons that really have to do with the kind of spiritual calling he had, uh, he uh, went and did the Hajj, and, and really his greatest book was inspired by his pilgrimage there. And after that time, went on up into present-day Syria and uh, um, Konya, up to uh, where, where Rumi was to live and teach just a few years later, and spent most of these uh, later adult life, from maybe 30 on, in present day, you know, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and that area, and really made Damascus eventually his home. So that's just his itinerary. Uh, but um, what was his, his spiritual and intellectual significance, spiritual and philosophical significance in the yeah. history of spirituality? Yeah. It's hard to talk about that with sounding like I'm exaggerating <laughs> in the Islamic uh, tradition of Islamic civilization, but his, there's this massive contrast between the time in which he lived, in which Islam politically almost disappeared between the Mongol invasions and the Crusades and the Reconquista. So he seems to have seen himself as a kind of um, a spiritual resource and repository for all that it developed in the Islamic tradition and all of the different uh, spiritual domains and, and religious sciences up to that time. So you could call him a poet. Um, I mean, you can't just call him these things. He was kind of um, the, the pinnacle of uh, the metaphysical poetic tradition, the uh, uh, tradition of practical Sufi teaching or practical spiritual teaching of um, philosophy theologian, uh, even jurist, although people don't appreciate that, it actually runs all the way through his work. So there's no area of Islamic thought in which he didn't, basically he wrote a kind of spiritual synthesis of all those traditions. Uh, you'd have to say an equivalent in Western Christian tradition, you'd kind of have to uh, mash together a whole bunch of people, kind of like uh, Meister Eckhart and 
um, Dante and um, uh, Thomas Aquinas, and even then you probably wouldn't, you'd probably need a few other individuals to kind of cover in the Western tradition all of these things that he uh, mastered in his tradition. And if I can, maybe that's your next question, but I might as well go on and say, and he was so, his perspectives were so universal that um, from his day until the 19th century, until the colonization of most of the Islamic world, uh, Islamic thought is really, whatever domain you look at, is kind of a history of people applying and rebuilding upon and using uh, different ideas that he uh, were kind of mastered. So for example, of poets like Rumi and Hafez who were masters of that civilization, when people wanted to comment them, they'd turn to Ibn Arabi or explain what they were saying. So. I won't get into his more recent uh, influences, but I hope that situates him in terms of the Islamic tradition. He was the, as they called him, the Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest master, the greatest teacher, really, of that tradition. He was also called the son of Plato. Uh, that's a later appellation, yeah, uh -huh. but uh, certainly, uh, since the Quran itself is highly platonic, not just Ibn Arabi, uh, mm -hmm. there's certainly a sense mm -hmm. in which... Uh, and he called himself the seal of the saints as well. If, if Muhammad was the seal of the prophets, mm -hmm. Ibn Arabi, conscious of his greatness, called himself the seal of the saints. Well, um, conscious of his uniqueness, <laughs> perhaps, um, because the seal of the saints, he distinguished between the kind of the seal at the end of time, who's Jesus, understood in the Islamic tradition, is coming at the end of time, so, or at least in the Sunni tradition, as that's the figure of Jesus. So he, he says he was the seal of the Mohammedan saints, but Mohammedan in his work doesn't, well, it isn't that it doesn't refer to Muhammad as a historical figure, but it refers to the universal logos, or the universal spiritual reality of which we are all a part and within which we live and breathe. And it's in that sense that he's, sees himself as the, uh, and the seal doesn't mean the last, but rather it means the most comprehensive or the all-inclusive. So what he's saying there is that he's setting himself up as a kind of interpreter of the spiritual dimensions of, certainly of his own tradition, but in many ways of, uh, uh, of the spiritual teachings of all the prophets. Uh, he, uh, please talk a little bit about his initial awakening. When did it happen and what was it? Well, um, interestingly enough, somewhere in his adolescence, I don't remember the exact years, um, but some 13 or 14, uh, he kind of went from being a, he was from a noble family in Spain and, and they were going to be, uh, uh, you know, powerful people and he was going to be a soldier like his father and, and like Spanish nobles did at that time. And uh, he really had, uh, very early on, a kind of opening of meeting all the prophets who came to, the, well, these, these experiences that he recounts in this Futuhat, his, his major book, are, uh, they're hard to summarize from the point of view of meaning, but he, basically he began to have visions and a visionary contact with the spiritual world, which not only informed him about his vocation, but basically he says most of his teachings that he taught the rest of his life came from this especially from one in which he sort of experienced his unity with the Quran. Now the Quran, again, understood here as, not as a book, but as the, uh, the uh, spiritual structure of, of the world. And uh, uh, the, all these claims sound very strange and very far-fetched and very exaggerated if you just speak to them briefly this way. The interesting thing is uh, when one turns to his books, um, one never ceases to make discoveries in a way that, um, that the kind of uh, 
I won't say truth, but the kind of value of the claims he makes is certainly in the um, fact that one, whenever you read Ibn Arabi, um, and I can think I can say this not only from my own experience, from them and many others, um, whatever you're reading about happens to you. <laughs> and that's very magical and very strange. And um, whatever you read uh, teaches you something, opens up a new window. That's really like his book might be called the Book of the Meccan Windows. <laughs> Illuminations is a kind of loose approximation. On to reality, and it's like having a spiritual dream, and only you take it into everyday life. So um, this is a kind of a power. His writing's not easy, but uh, that whatever you read of his, it seems to have that kind of spiritual efficacy. And uh, very few writings have that. A lot can appear to your intellect, but um, I, I've found other writings, the translations of the Zohar, for example, which Danny Matt does here in Berkeley. Um, He's a few blocks away. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're neighbors here practically while we're doing this. Uh, it's another book that has that, that kind of power. But uh, Ibn Arabi's writings do that, and they do it for people, whatever their religious background, whatever their experience, just as I might add, the, the Zohar does as well. Mm -hmm. when, what happened to you when you first encountered Ibn Arabi? I had landed in, uh, this is, uh, well, I'll tell you my story, but I have to say that once we were at a conference of Ibn Arabi scholars in Sicily in 1990, and a journalist asked me or someone else this question, how did you get interested in Ibn Arabi or what happened? And I said, well, let's go around the room. And it, to my mind, it's one of the high points of any conference I've ever been to to hear, um, because I... Um, I think the first time I even heard of him or picked him up was uh, there was a bookstore in the part of Casablanca where I'd just gotten off the plane in the old city of Casablanca. What year was that? Uh, 1971. I was on a scholarship to study Arabic, having just finished my degree at the uh, University of Chicago. And um, I walked out, and there was a store with these book stalls in front of it, like the Grand Magasin in Paris. And there was a book there that just grabbed my attention. It just kind of fell off of my hands. This happens to me quite often. But, um, and it was Corbin's uh, L'Imagination Créatrice, the, the creative imagination, the thing that's now you know, translated and published under the title Alone with the Alone. I barely knew French. I'd had 10 weeks of a, one quarter of French. And, and, but somehow I bought that book, had it bound in leather, and uh, um, didn't really, and then uh, I was studying Arabic in Strasbourg later that year and ran across um, Osman Yahya's sort of biobibliographical study of Ibn Arabi. And uh, again, these were just... Ran across study? Osman Yahya, the person who's edited, the major editor okay, of, of Ibn Arabi's work. And uh, uh, it's sort of the major sort of scholarly study of his life and works. And uh, again, I, I was still struggling with just learning French and certainly third, third year, second, third year of Arabic. So. Uh, it was a good while later that I actually started reading things, and I think really uh, Izutsu's book, uh, Sufism and Taoism, this, this magnificent study of the Fasus al was the first book I ever read, and uh, that was, and no sooner did I read it than I was off to uh, Tehran to study with Korban and Izutsu and, and uh, Hossein Nasser, and that's all we did was read texts of Ibn Arabi in those years in the, in the mid-70s. What, what was the impact on you spiritually of, of that connection? At that time, I was encountering a lot of groups and people and new cultures and all, and I didn't realize 
what I was being led on to. I actually came to Ibn Arabi more through my study of the later philosophers in Iran, like Mullah Sadr, who wrote my thesis on. I was working with Corban on him and, and uh, figured out eventually that you couldn't study Malasadra without knowing uh, Ibn Arabi really well. So um, I would say where the real spiritual influence came, and it was like a new start, was when uh, uh, I was working in Paris and uh, we got a grant, uh, Michel Shadkiewicz did, to, uh, to translate more of Ibn Arabi, to make him more available. And that turned me to his... Um, uh, Meccan Revelations, these two volumes that eventually came out, uh, Peer Press has them out now. And studying the Futuhat was something totally different because the Fusus had been kind of a philosophic, intellectual appreciation of a lot of spiritual realities. And, I, and these uh, perspectives are often taken over in a lot of modern student religions like uh, Shuan and others. But when you turn to the Futuhat, there I found what has always fascinated with me ever since, which is this connection between our individual spiritual life and the realities and experiences that each person encounters, be they in a religious framework or non-religious framework. And uh, I could actually, how this happened was I um, read a book Shotkovitz had written about the Kadab al-Muraqif, which is by Abdul Qadir, the, the leader of the Algerian resistance against the French when France conquered France. And then he went to Damascus. I didn't realize this at the time, but he's the one who created the modern edition, the first modern edition, the Bulak edition of the Futuhat, and he was a lifelong student of Ibn Arabi and all. And there are certain things that he described there that happened to me all the time in praying, that I, a certain, I, you know, there, you sort of have to think of certain verses you're going to recite in prayer. And um, I would, a verse would come to my mind, which is the answer to the spiritual dilemma or a question that I was living through at the time. And here was uh, Abdul Qadir in his book describing that experience, you know, to a T and had a name for it and all. And uh, as soon as I started uh, with sort of Bill Chittick and I uh, sort of split up the Futuhat and did uh, different sections on different topics, in some ways both of us have spent the rest of our lives uh, rather assiduously working on this same text because, um, uh, and only a small part as it was yet translated, but uh, as I said, the, uh, from then on it was uh, this constant intellectual discovery of Ibn Arabi, but always in the context of uh, whatever I would pick up to translate or be asked to talk about or whatever would turn out to be integrally connected with, with my life. And, uh, I guess that's far enough as far as how it started, but in, in an odd sort of way, that was kind of like pushing the restart button, and that's what really uh, made the difference, was discovering the Futuhat as opposed to the more uh, philosophic uh, tradition that, that was focused on his Fusus al-Hikam, his Bezels of Wisdom. So that was so rich that uh, let me just take a moment for listeners yeah. and, and, um, and decipher some of the references here. Um, but even before I do that, I want to um, to speak to um, to some of your uh, work. You, you, for one thing, the uh, the translation of the Meccan Revelations uh, by James W. Morris and William Chittick, edited by Michael Chodkowitz. Um, I've read the first volume, um, and um, read in it, mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. uh, I haven't read the second. Um, but uh, then you spoke of the Bezels of Wisdom, uh, which is uh, 
also uh, by Ibn Arabi and is out in an edition from the classics of Western spirituality. Um, and then uh, you mentioned both your book, um, The Reflective Heart. Where did I put that? Okay, good. That's right in front of me. Uh, you mentioned your book, The Reflective Heart, Discovering Spiritual Intelligence in Ibn Arabi's Meccan Illuminations. And you mentioned a, a wonderful companion volume, really I read them together, by William Chittick, uh, The Sufi Path of Knowledge, Ibn uh, al-Arabi's Metaphysics of Imagination. So those are simply some mm -hmm. of the references that you, you just made. The reflective heart in reading about Ibn Arabi was, for me, an extraordinary book. The subtitle, Discovering Spiritual Intelligence in Ibn Arabi's Mecca Illuminations, with a, um, a foreword by a uh, Catholic uh, uh, theologian. <laughs> theologian from uh, Notre Dame, uh, who basically uh, says that what you have managed to do. Uh, in short, Morris's presentation teaches us how to become apprentices to a spiritual master, in this case Ibn Arabi, in the very way in which Morris exhibits his apprenticeship to Ibn Arabi. I'm going to stop for a minute and let Charlie pick up that line. Let me stop that. Okay, good. I didn't want to... Right. To Presume, I, I'm going to start again here. Could we just, can I just stop? Yeah. Talking? Thank you. Okay. So in the foreword uh, to your book, The Reflective Heart, uh, by David Burrell, Hesper Professor in Philosophy and Theology at the University of Notre Dame, um, he says, uh, as we follow Morris's manner of presenting his master, Ibn Arabi, he will initiate us into Ibn Arabi's own way of allowing the Quran to be his master. Uh, and then he says, in short, Morris's presentation teaches us how to become apprentices to a spiritual master, in this case Ibn Arabi, in the very way in which Morris exhibits his apprenticeship to Ibn Arabi. Put simply, if Ibn Arabi develops a reflective heart by assiduous meditation on his revelational source, the Quran, Morris's extensive and intensive penetration of this voluminous work of Ibn Arabi exhibits for us the fruit we may expect from meditation on our own scriptures. Morris's way of teaching mirrors that of the great teacher. I thought that was a nice, a nice mm -hmm. introduction. Yeah, and. Uh very much in keeping with Ibn Arabi's spirit, because although he uses the word Quran there, as I've said, Quran, as we'll see in the talk I'm giving and the things I've translated here, uh, for Ibn Arabi, it's the gathering of all uh, manifest reality or existence, so it's a lot bigger than just a book that, uh, you know, was unveiled a certain time ago and so forth. So, uh, And so in the book, um, it's, so, it's so fascinating to me because Reading Ibn Arabi has reduced me to a kind of sweet bewilderment. I, I had been writing an essay called Three Masters of Cordoba that, uh, about Maimonides Averroes. Is that how you say it? Averroes. Averroes. Ibn Rushd Averroes. Maimonides Averroes and, and Ibn Arabi. And uh, I, 
I was in Cordoba in May with my wife, saw the statues of Maimonides and Averroes. I'm having trouble saying Yeah, that's it. Averroes. That's Latin word. Um, and began by going back to Maimonides, who I'd read before, the, the great Jewish philosopher. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then recognized Averroes was the great translator of Aristotle. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, but didn't really know Ibn Arabi. And then I came to Ibn Arabi, and my writing just kind of came to a halt. It just sort of turned into a puddle, because I, first of all, I thought to myself, how can I possibly add anything to all the extraordinary writing that's been done about Ibn Arabi? Mm -hmm. But secondly, for me, um, there was this depth of experience that is rare for me. Mm -hmm. um, and. Um, so in any case, back to your book, when I think about how to talk with you about it, I think, well, perhaps the best way is to, to look at the way you've divided it up in your book. So you have uh, chapters on, first of all, the reflective heart, the process of spiritual intelligence. Then you have chapters on journeying, listening, uh, seeing, discerning, and returning. So let's start, should we start with journeying or start with a reflective heart? Is it important to start, where, where should we start? Journeying. journeying. We're all journeying. Okay. <laughs> so we're all journeying. You don't need the theory, that's the practice. <laughs> and, and the journey is both in the physical world, uh, the horizontal journeying, but there's also the vertical journeying into mm -hmm. the spirit. Yeah. How does Ibn Arabi describe that? Well, it's interesting. First of all, maybe the best place for most people who are listening to this is to to keep in mind that the best way to read Ibn Arabi is in conjunction with someone like Rumi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact, in my own life, I got turned okay. on to Rumi long before I discovered Ibn Arabi. Mm -hmm. I, I, by that I mean, it's if you just take Ibn Arabi, this is going to be pretty intellectual. Whereas that's why I said let's start with journeying because. From his perspective, and uh, often poets capture this for us better because we find the poet or the musician or the film or whatever that captures the spiritual meaning of what has happened to us or what is happening to us at each instant. Well, that's what spiritual journey means for Ibn Arabi is really discovering that, in fact, nothing happens by accident, that there is meaning and whatever we're going through, our task in life is to discover the meaning and whatever messages were being sent. And I, I like the metaphor of journeying partly because it's universal and partly because it doesn't discriminate between this religion or that religion or whatever. It simply says, this is our situation. We're pilgrims. I mean, that's a nice image within both Christian and Islamic tradition. And uh, what's interesting about Ibn Arabi, uh, that later on people became very restrictive in their understanding of this notion of spiritual journey. It became kind of a, there are tons of technical books written about different stages of the path and so forth. He lived in a time before that kind of technical either institutionalization or intellectualization had gotten very far. And in his day, he uses this wonderful word for our position in the world. He calls it siyaha, which in modern Arabic is tourism, <laughs> or actually in a number of other Islamic languages as well. And that's the journeying where we're kind of wandering through the world, where we don't know where we should be, but we're kind of finding our way as we go along. And uh, 
for him, that's kind of where we all start, is in this wandering. It looks maybe random, it looks uncertain, we don't know where we're going next. Uh, think of how many, the genre of road films, of spiritual journey films. This is what you kind of have to keep in mind when you're thinking of what he's talking about in terms of Siaha, and everybody has their favorite uh, Wim Wenders or whatever it might be of films that convey this. So. He has, for example, these wonderful encounters there, and I, th I think he's one of the rare writers And to talk about this. Uh, I, I immediately thought of California when I was translating these passages about the ways in which we encounter the divine names and we encounter God in primordial nature in uh, along the seashore, in the mountains, and so forth. Places, by the way, in the Middle Ages and, and medieval times where people wouldn't go. They were just too scared. You know, there were bandits and pirates and all these people here. But he talks about that uh, immediacy of our relationship with God and when in, in nature and and I was uh, I kept thinking is this John Muir is this Ibn Arabi <laughs> you know when I was translating these passages because for myself coming as a you know lonely farm boy out and uh, leading a contemplative in nature for life and nature for 10 or so years before I ever got into the civilized world this is what I lived and and so wow this is really exciting you know that this uh, Were you born on a farm? Uh, I grew up on the farm. I where? was in Illinois, where uh -huh. I was, and I have uh, Native American ancestors on oh, both you? sides, and my father and mother's really? sides as well. So, so I always had an affinity with uh, the spirituality of the natural world and and with our essential contemplative relationship. That's very hard to articulate, but absolutely uh, life giving to all of the, you know, the the things that you discover just when you're out there by yourself, uh, as I often was for 12, 18 hours a day uh, working and. Uh, so, um, so that's that's wandering, and uh, it's not wandering astray. It's simply that uh, we all, as of course, as you begin to discover, and this is where the reflective uh, spiritual intelligence comes in. As we begin to discover that none of this is accidental, and that each of these people we encounter in these places go is teaching us lessons, that leads us to put them into practice. We begin to help hypotheses, if you call them, spiritual principles, and as we put them into practice. The cycle intensifies and becomes more focused because we begin to realize that, hey, we're not here by accident. We have tasks to undertake. And uh, that question of calling is what the talk will be about tonight. Is Wonderful. What about listening, contemplation on the purified heart? Well, uh, this really brings in the important uh, thing there. And it's interesting that in the Islamic tradition, there's sort of a both listening and seeing are the uh, in the Quran are the images of proximity, of images of closeness. But listening comes closer. Listening is what's really primordial. So this chapter is about his teachings about purification, about um, uh, understanding. And this is this is so important. Again, in the later technical forms of spiritual practice and in institutions, this. You get more and more technical writings about this, which are further and further removed from actually getting you where you want to go. Ibn Arabi's writing at a time where things like um, uh, prayer and fasting, which are the two most uh, omnipresent uh, things that he's talking about, were things that brought together all the people of his community, not just uh, mystics or any kind of, sort of specialized group. And so uh, on the one hand, he's writing here about practice and how it can help us to to concentrate and focus our spiritual attention. But above all, he's writing about, um, in retrospect, what I find, and I think a lot of people do, I have students from all spiritual traditions over the years, is that you start out thinking you're doing something, that it's all about the ego and what I'm doing. And listening isn't just about 
beginning to actually hear things. Above all, it's about the practice of understanding that we should have been listening all along, that everything is a lesson for us. And that's sort of moving from the egos trying to control this listening to actually uh, being open to the lessons and the intuitions and all that we have all the time is uh, the next stage of everybody's spiritual journey. And of course, we know there are people who do this so, so aptly and so easily they don't even think about it. But most people have to struggle to let go of that part of us, the ego that sort of you know, wants to make something of this and build certain things up and depreciates other things. So listening is, learning to listen is at the very heart of what Ibn Arabi teaches. And it's something that, uh, as I said, we, we all learn at our own speed, our own mm -hmm. process. Yeah. And you mentioned sp seeing, uh, the next chapter, seeing spiritual vision and the mysteries of is Isan, is that how you Isan, of, of uh, doing what's good and doing what's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I, I, uh, the, the definition that underlies that in this famous hadith is to worship or serve God as though you see him, for even if you don't, he sees you. But the same phrase in Arabic is to worship God as though you see him, for if you are not, you do see him. So if your ego is not there, we do see God at all times. Uh, it's a chronic phrase, you know, where, wherever you turn, there's the face of God. So that there's all the spiritual journey is encapsulated in this. And the reason I, you, I'm glad you mentioned this, Son, is I find that in the modern world, and it's part of our Protestant heritage that unfortunately the whole world has to suffer now, is uh, people think of religion and spirituality as being uh, essentially only ethical. <laughs> Whereas um, when you go back, what leads us to go to Kyoto or to go to the mountains here, go to the redwoods, whatever, the dimension of beauty is always what draws human beings closer to God. And it's only any action which is not beautiful at the same time as being good is probably not good. <laughs> it's probably ego involved at the very least. So, in my experience, not only take any tradition you want today, but that, that essential inseparability of beauty and good, which is, of course, quite platonic, you know, you're getting into the platonic side here, is something that I, students of whatever age that I teach are starved for, and they separate them. People in the modern world tend to separate the, that beauty, which is essential to the desire that leads us on from... Uh, we think, oh, well, I'm going to sort of torture myself to do good for people. But in fact, uh, if we try and make life beautiful, if we respond to God's beauty with our own acts of beauty, we'll touch far more people and transform far more lives than we will if we try and sort of... Because people who do good usually have the sense and carry the sense around with them that everybody else is not doing good, which is totally destructive and delusional. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I find, uh, this is why I always teach these things through art, through music, through poetry, uh, as indeed uh, everybody in how Islamic civilization came into being after Ibn Arabi. One of the things I point out is most Muslims in the world today live in areas which are not Muslim in his time, that is, east, north, and west of Turkey. And they came to that through people like Rumi, Hafez, and Ibn Arabi and all, and they came to it because their uh, they're Isan. They're doing what's beautiful and what's good through what's beautiful is something that naturally appears, appeals to people and draws them on. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in the end of Goethe's Faust too, you know, <laughs> that it's the, the eternal feminine, you know, draws us on here. But uh, uh, it's important, you know, Faust was uh, 
I mean, Goethe was heir to uh, to these poets and to uh, to uh, to Ibn Arabi. And in fact, I'd like to introduce a, a parenthesis here before yeah. we go on with the outline of your book, um, which is uh, you wrote an essay which I haven't read but mm -hmm. noted the title of on uh, Ibn Arabi and Derrida on. Uh, uh, just did a just did a review of. of oh, uh, it's uh, a review. Uh, Ian, something, okay. <laughs> another scholar's. Studies. Oh, it's another scholar's yeah. work. Yeah. Uh, but I was, I was curious about uh, another scholar's work on Ibn on on Ibn Arabi and deconstructionism, mm -hmm. because what brings it up obviously is that that truth, beauty, goodness, these Platonic senses that these are mm -hmm. part of reality in the mm -hmm. deep sense that Ibn Arabi speaks of it, seems to be the polar opposite of deconstruction and Derrida. But I'm not sure that's the case that was being made there, nor am I sure how you, uh, working and living in, in this period of time, uh, hold uh, what philosophy has done to Ibn Arabi's sense of the truly good, the truly beautiful, uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. and the truth, and how you hold that as a contemporary scholar, spiritual seeker, mm -hmm. yeah. in relationship to uh, what yeah. the, the end point that modern philosophy came to. Yeah. Well, your, your um, question here really goes to the heart of what Ibn Arabi coined this term, or the way he uses the term tahkik, or I translate it as realization or actualization. And the interesting thing is there's actually a strong affinity between his method of teaching as intellectual method of teaching uh, and uh, Derrida, even though the, um, the relativism is absent <laughs> from him. I mean, the kind of uh, suspension of any discovery at the end, like we're just sort of... Uh, but what Ibn Arabi does with traditional religious language is to take it apart and help us to go back to the underlying experiences that originally was meant to refer to, uh, as opposed to the concretized in intellectual and other uh, institutional forms that it takes on. And uh, as a teacher at an undergraduate level, you're just, that's all you're doing is help people both learn and unlearn at the same time. The, the unlearning of whatever ideas they have in a Socratic sense goes side hand in hand with their learning something new. And by the way, this isn't just intellectual. If you're an art teacher, you have to get people to discover their actual artist in them and let go of whatever skills that they've learned while they're learning new skills. So it doesn't matter whether you're teaching an art or teaching music or teaching, uh, there's always this ongoing process of deconstruction and discovery, and they go I hand see. in hand. So the so point <laughs> is that, that Ibn Arabi, like Derrida, deconstructed the intellectual apparatus that keeps us from the direct deep experience. experience. Mm -hmm. But the relativism is absent in Ibn Arabi. The odd thing is, is as you discover, that experience is shared by all other human beings. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it isn't, you haven't <laughs> gone deep enough, you know, and uh, because that's the only way you discover it is you discover beauty by the sharing of beauty. You discover truth by the, but I mean, and interesting, of course, might as well throw it in here, but of course, this key word, the leitmotif of everything in Ibn Arabi, this word al haq, which is, we shouldn't ever translate it as truth, but the Arabic is what's real and what the real demands of us. 
And so it's duty, it's right, and it's reality. And uh, every, what all these people are trying to do is not communicate some truth, which is, comes down ultimately to some belief that one compares to other belief systems or intellectual systems, but to get us back in touch with reality. And that's very satisfying. That is what Islam originally meant, is the peace that comes from the discovery, becoming one with reality. Your next chapter is about discerning, learning to translate from God. Mm -hmm. um, help us understand that. Can I just <laughs> take a peek here sure. and remember all that goes on there? Yeah, um, this is the translation from discovery into the next dimension, Hakka's reality to Hakka, as the demands of reality and what, what we should do next. And um, that's obviously the very heart of spiritual intelligence. And I think the most important to say, thing to say about Ibn Arabi, because he's very blunt about it, and the only person I know who's nearly as blunt as the poet Hafez, is that we only learn discernment through experience and primarily through getting things wrong in life. And I, I actually have never met somebody who learned any other way. And so discernment is inseparable from the situation of engagement with actually acting according to what we know so that we discover what we don't know, to use a common formula that Minarabi uses. And this is, um, you know, earlier we were talking about different spiritual, spiritual teachers I've encountered and so forth. But to my mind, when you read Ibn Arabi, Rumi, and all these people, I think you're really getting there. The fundamental difference is most people who don't reflect in these, and I'm not saying something isn't said by the great teachers in every tradition, but they think that teaching has to do with telling us what we should be doing or how we should be doing it or whatever. But of course, that's like the ABCs of spiritual growth. I mean, spiritual growth really just comes when we discover that it's the challenges, the difficulties, the mistakes, the confusions, the miscommunications. These are the things we actually learn from in each lifetime. And uh, that is what Ibn Arabi is talking about here is um, by, he actually, in this chapter that I took as the growth that he talks about how the Mahdi, or the sort of redeemer, the person who is, which is, we'd all like to be, the rightly, it means the rightly guided one. But to become rightly guided, we have to have and develop certain spiritual tools and insights. And uh, by putting the ideal up there, he reminds all of us how far we are from, the, from being able to actualize that reality. But at the same time, those become like pole stars that we can use to guide our experience, I mean, to make sense of our experiences so that our next round of action becomes better guided. And um, this is something that, um, why it's so important that people have these spiritual groups, whatever they're called, where you're working with other people who are on this path. because. There's kind of spiritual groups for people who need to be, have their questions answered. And then there are other spiritual groups, and they, they usually form and reform and take different forms for people who are at this stage where they're, they know they should be out on their own. <laughs> and yet to journey on that journey, you have to constantly have people in this world or in somewhere else who can guide us and balance us and be our kind of balance wheels and our critiques. And if you're lucky, you get to marry somebody like that in life, you know, and that makes it a lot easier, you know. But, uh, but of course, uh, most people, um, but you can also be equally lucky and marry somebody who's like a constant friction against that, mm -hmm. <laughs> against that tension. So who's luckier? I don't know. I've had 
two marriages. One was the friction kind, and the other kind was the, the shared, shared uh, progress in the path. But if I die, you ask me which one I'll probably have learned more from. Well, it was probably from the, the friction, friction, you know, from the, from the incompatibilities. And that's kind of a metaphor for life. I, I think that, you know, people get to the point where they discover how important this is to learn from life's conflicts and uncertainties and insecurities and all. You know, I think you said something earlier in your own experience. When I, I feel like I'm in this kind of blissful bewilderment or happy bewilderment or whatever. And for Ibn Arabi, he calls that state haira or bewilderment. It's the same term Maimonides uses in Arabic to describe his great book, the Dalat al-Hairin. And uh, that's uh, something that, okay, you may be blissful for you, but often for us in life, we call that same state boredom or fear. <laughs> you know, we can associate all sorts of emotions with that, uh, that, that sense of kind of clearing the heart so that God will show us the next thing that we have to learn or the next thing that we have to do. So it's a, it's a simple chapter, but it's incredibly, you just go back to it. I've written a number of articles on the underlying that chapter of Ibn Arabi, and I still they're asking me to teach about it at Garrison at the end of the month uh -huh. because uh, discernment is the crux of all of this. And it's uh, only when people can kind of let go of looking right or looking like you know things that you can really tackle the, the ongoing difficulties of discernment that we all have to deal with. Your last chapter is called Returning, Exploring mm -hmm. the Divine Shadow Play. And in this, you get into this wonderful metaphor that Ibn Arabi uses, or perhaps it's not a metaphor, perhaps it's reality, uh, <laughs> uh, of the shadow theater and deciphering the divine signs. Um, tell us about uh, returning and exploring the divine shadow play. Well, um, and this is part of a big set of lectures I gave at the Ecole Pratique and hope to get out in a book when I get a sabbatical next time. But um, the important thing here, and, and I, if you don't mind, I'll throw in Plato's, not only Plato's uh, Sunlight and Cave section of the right. Republic, but you always tell my students you have to read that together with the Symposium and the Phaedrus because you have to bring in love and beauty in a way that it's the three of those together that really give Plato's you know, picture of our eschatological condition. And the thing, that, the reason I put it in there, and I realize how important it is today, is that Ibn Arabi and, and all the Sufi poets later on use eschatology as an image of our spiritual state. They understand it, and the more you read them, I mean, most people... Eschatology meaning? Meaning the uh, imagery of um, the states of the fires on the one hand, the gardens on the other hand, and the other imagery, which nobody ever sees in the crowd unless they read it very closely, but a proximity to God, which is uh, uh, what goes beyond the sensual images of the fires and the gardens. And by his time, this is already widespread, and certainly uh, in a poet like Rumi or Hafez, they're all the time talking about wine and the gardens and all of this imagery. If you think of that imagery as something that happens at some undefined future state, you can't begin to understand Islam or the Quran or any of these other things. But the language, and this is a case where language trips people up all the time because people mistranslate these things in the future tense, whereas the Quran is trying to give us a set of mirrors to understand where we are at any given moment. And frankly, we swing back and forth between gardens and fires, as the poets make clear all the time. And as we swing back and forth, we learn something from both states and we move on towards this, uh, which uh, closeness just means perceiving things as they really are, and uh, which the to use the prophet's uh, famous prayer. So um, I, I just, I, you don't need to know all of this symbolism to make sense of uh, 
our life. But it is important to know that Muslim authors, like Ibn Arabi, used it all the time to talk about things that uh, uh, we talk about in the language of film, for example. Primarily, uh, our, our film tradition, the films that you go back to and want to see again and again, and I've been using films for 20 years, they're catching this eschatological or these, these higher dimensions of ourself and portraying them for us in images out there, just as the language of the Quran was doing in its own time. So, but what really happens about the return here, now to, to turn to, from the kind of explaining the imagery to the actual reality, is the book up to that point has kind of been phrased about what you can learn as an individual. But as soon as you begin to look at this process of realization, actualization, spiritual growth, whatever language you want to talk about in all these dimensions, you also realize that we're never in this alone. In fact, um, it's like a play in which everyone is playing their part without knowing that they're playing their part. And so this image of the shadow theater, it was just, I couldn't believe as I started commenting on it, all the dimensions that came out there because it's really helping us to see that uh, we're simultaneously, we're learning from everyone else, but we're also teaching all those around us and becoming aware of that larger arena of our action, of our learning first of all, but then of our action is kind of the adult stage then of the spiritual path where you, you really are, um, uh, it's a kind of like sailing. Um, if you get the wind in your sails, then you realize that, oops, um, in fact, the wind's always blowing. You know, you just have to turn your sails the right direction so you can capture that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and here, here's where the creativity comes in, the creativity of teaching, of pedagogy, of how can you communicate what you know to others, uh, to take that famous uh, phrase of the Quran, as for your God, Lord's blessings, you know, recite, um, share them, you know, getting out there. How do you share these? And that's where each of us kind of has to become an artist, um, an artist teacher. Uh, how do we, with our own children, as they're from infants and adolescence and beyond, with whatever sphere we're put in in life, this return is about... Uh, in the language of Ibn Arabi's day, by the way, the question of return has to do with, first of all, returning to God, but as he points out, all of the saints and realized beings, uh, the vast number of them, uh, when they get to that stage, they end up coming back into life and devoting their life to teaching. And, and in fact, that's a higher experience. state than the saints who remain in God. It's the Islamic term for bodhisattvas, you know, bodhisattva. exactly the same reality. And, uh, and of course, they continue to do this on through, with not eternity, certainly for thousands and thousands of years as we count them. And uh, so they're not, they don't die, you know. <laughs> and of course, this, this then feeds into the uh, wider institutionalization of Islamic spirituality uh, throughout the Eastern Islamic world during these centuries. As this idea makes it very easily possible for Muslims and Hindus and Christians and Jews and, and uh, Buddhists to live side by side and realizing that they're all practicing the same, uh, I won't use the word religion, I don't want to get anybody upset, but the same deen, to use the chronic term, that we're all, we're all in this play and we're all in, we have to find out where we are and what our tasks are. And, uh, and since you mentioned it, uh, you notice I pointed out that uh, the theater critic are not the experts, <laughs> you know, so of course, which are the intellectuals, you know, or the theater critics of the divine comedy. And in fact, Ibn Arabi, didn't he say there are three kinds of people? Um, there are the, those of sort of simple faith, the children, mm -hmm. uh, there are the philosophers, 
and the intellectuals, are, yeah. the intellectuals, and there are those on the the path to understanding deep reality. Who combine both that, the intellect right. and the experience, which is right. spiritual intelligence. And interestingly, he insists that the intellectual dimension is quite critical to true progress on the, on the spiritual path. Yeah. So he's not one of these who sort of dismisses yeah. the mind at all, yeah. but, but that the mind can be helpful in the path beyond the mind. It always is helpful, but is always a constant uh, pitfall as exactly. well. And I, I just would, it's not a correction, but just a refinement of it, just that they're not so much kinds of people as stages we uh -huh. go through. Stages of And uh, that's like because just as we go back and forth between fires and gardens, we go back and forth between uh, deep faith and mm -hmm. unconscious um, hypocrisy, the Quran calls it, but unconscious uh, arguments with God, which definitely take us away from that. And so uh, I always prefer language of stages or of levels of realization because we all know that we can find ourselves the next day uh, uh, tumble down. You know, this process of journeying is like the game of shoots and ladders where uh, it'd be nice if it was always <laughs> stage by stage by stage. But often in order to progress, we have to uh, kind of fall through the chute and, and start off in some place we never thought we'd find ourselves and have to work our way up from there because there's something new to be learned there. So, One central theme of Ibn Arabi's is oneness. Mm -hmm. Say a little about what he means by that. Again, uh, the term is, is going to necessarily be thrown around by everybody who reads Ibn Arabi, mm -hmm. be, especially because that kind of term, the unicity of being, was the term that in the Eastern Islamic world, philosophers and all used to express this kind of philosophy. Um, I, I think a better way of looking at it um, is just to take the term that, that he would use the most often is Tawheed. So it's, it's going to take a lot of words in English to say these things because it's the perception of the relationship of all things, including ourselves, to their source. And so it's, and that, does oneness capture that? I, I think it's too intellectual to, to my mind. It sounds like a sort of philosophy or a theory. Uh, people then call it monism or whatever. But the perception of things, we, the human mind can only conceive of the real as, if we're not in the real, then of something outside. So it becomes, when I say relation to the one, it becomes kind of an external relationship. But of course, the one englobes all being. <laughs> And so discovering our relationship to the one, which is what this oneness question is all about, really has to do with um, letting go of that part of us which somehow believes or expects that we're somehow separate to begin with. And so, of course, the term that philosophers come up to talk about this is whether it's in Shankar or Ibn Arabi or in Buddhism, whatever, is non-dualism, uh, which doesn't get you too far except if you're a philosopher, but non-dualism at least gets over. It's like saying, yes, there's the appearance of all this multiplicity and separation, and at the same time, from time to time in life, we're aware of, the, uh, of our relationship to the whole. And, you know, the important thing here is not the intellectual, we could talk forever, and people have in commentating in the books of Ibn Arabi, but the importance about that relationship is realizing what it entails on the level of practice and experience, which is, one, our inseparability from all other creatures, um, not just human beings, but creatures and throughout time, and secondly, our obligations 
and the direction in life that flows from our awareness of that inseparability. And that is a never-ending discovery. And, mm. and of course, the third thing is how you communicate that awareness. <laughs> but, uh, so I guess you could say they're the stages that the book goes through. I didn't realize the book was so uh, nicely ordered. It's nice of you to remind me of that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> hey, Jim Morris, thank you for being with us for the new school. Thank you.